The brutal murder of Daniel Morgan in 1987 is one of Britain's most high-profile unsolved crimes. It's inspired attention not just because of its gruesome nature, but because of suspicions as to why it remained unsolved. Namely, that a number of police of various ranks didn't want it to be. Yesterday, those suspicions were confirmed when an independent panel found the Metropolitan Police's actions surrounding the case to amount to institutional corruption. Tonight, I speak to an expert on the case. Also on the show, I have Dahlia Gabriel. Dahlia, how are you doing? Have you survived today's heat wave? I'm good. I mean, heat is normally my complete, like, what I'm in love with. Like, normally this would be the exact temperature I'd like. But first of all, I somehow have managed to get so sucked into work that I didn't even go outside today, which is tragic. <laughs> but also, it's just, like, cloying. Like, it maybe because it's, like, before a thunderstorm, but it's just not the kind of bright heat that I like. It's, like, very kind of, like, sticky so I'm kind of dying behind the lights here right now. <laughs> I mean, I definitely see what you're saying when you say sticky. I feel what you're saying, I suppose, but we will miss it when we have three days of rain coming up. In 1987, private investigator Daniel Morgan was murdered with an axe to the head in a pub car park in South London. 34 years later, no one has been convicted of the crime. Now, already in 2011, the Metropolitan Police had admitted that failings in the initial investigation into the murder were hampered by corruption within the local police force. But this week, an independent inquiry found that subsequent investigations into the case were hampered by the desire of the Metropolitan Police to conceal its own failings. Baroness Nuella Olone, who chaired the panel, said this amounted to institutional corruption. The family of Daniel Morgan has suffered grievously as a consequence of the failure to bring his murderer or murderers to justice, the unwarranted assurances which they were given, the misinformation which was put into the public domain, and the denial of failings in the investigation, including failings to, failings to acknowledge professional incompetence, individuals' venal behaviour, and managerial and organisational failures. We believe that concealing or denying failings for the sake of an organization's public image is dishonesty on the part of the organization for reputational benefit. This constitutes a form of institutional corruption. Institutional corruption is obviously an incredibly serious charge. Tonight we'll be talking about exactly what it means in this instance. First, though, we would be remiss not to highlight how the findings of this magnitude only come as a result of struggle. These aren't the kind of investigations governments bring about of their own accord. Now, in this case, that struggle was led by Daniel Morgan's family. Raj Bhatt is the lawyer representing them and speaking on their behalf, he welcomed the inquiry's findings and commented on the experience of the family since Daniel Morgan's murder. As Daniel's family, we became aware of the police corruption at the heart of this matter within three weeks of the murder. We said so then, and we have, we have had to say so repeatedly over the decades since the murder. Through those decades, we had to engage in public protests, meetings with police officers at the highest ranks, lobbying of politicians and pleas to the media. At almost every step, we found ourselves lied to, fobbed off, bullied, degraded, and let down time and time again. What we were required to endure was nothing less than torture, 
and that has changed our relationship with this country forever. I'm joined by Peter Jukes. Peter is executive editor at the Byline Times and also the creator of the brilliant podcast series Untold, which tells the story of Daniel Morgan's murder. This is an incredibly complex story. And if, if people want to know the, the ins and the outs of the, the events surrounding this murder, they should check out your, your podcast, which is excellent. The reviews are incredible. For the purposes of this show, though, what are the real key issues about this case that make it so important? And especially I want to focus now on the initial murder and the initial corruption which surrounded that first investigation. Well, one of the ways of understanding what the family went through is those first few days with Alistair Morgan. So Alistair Morgan, brother of Daniel, his older brother, um, heard about his death and came straight to London and within a few hours went to the murder scene, spoke to Daniel's business partner at this detective agency, Southern Investigations, and quite quickly realized that Jonathan Reese, his partner, the last person who knew Daniel to see him alive, was a suspect. He then went to the one police officer he knew in the area, in the Catford area, uh, a detective sergeant, Sid Fillory, who he'd met through Jonathan Reese and through Daniel and told him his suspicions, and immediately he was run out of town. The next thing that happened was that at the inquest, it was revealed from evidence, taped evidence, and sworn affidavits of a bookkeeper, that Jonathan Reese had planned to kill Daniel, and that Sid Fillory, the detective, would leave Catford Police Station and take Daniel's place, and by the time the inquest, that had happened. Now, what the panel have found, they don't see any direct involvement of Catford and South East London, by the way, a notorious place for police corruption in the 80s, that actually involved in the murder. But Fillory was the first person to interview Reese. He took papers away from Southern Investigations. And so you have that very, within three weeks, Alistair said, he knew police corruption was involved and they ignored it. Nothing happened after the inquest. There was a PCA of the Police Complaints Authority inquest, in investigation into the murder, the first murder investigation, no police corruption. So from that three weeks in 1987, it's taken till now for them to accept there was original police corruption. But that corruption just spread from that one moment. Once Billy and Reese and Southern Investigations arrested, got off, they became the one-stop shop for police corruption and News of the World and other media organizations to get the fruits of police corruption so that by the mid-90s, the late-90s, they were described within the panel report as a hub of corruption. Basically, 10 police officers were arrested and convicted, all connected with Southern Investigations. And all through that time, the Morgan family were ignored. And we talked to Alistair. He knew there were nasty people around Daniel in that world, that sort of twilight world of private investigators. But what shocked him more was the betrayal of the police. From that first moment, the one person he confides in actually takes Daniel's place. If you need to know one thing about this case, it was someone who was a private investigator whose partner had involvement with the police. The person is then, Daniel Morgan is, is, is killed. The prime suspect is then interviewed by one of his best friends who goes on to take Daniel Morgan's job. So it's, it's just all incredibly suspicious from the outset. We'll be going through, through more of this as the show develops. And I want to bring up now the terms of reference for the panel, because this is really interesting, what this panel were, were sent away to investigate and to 
like find answers to essentially. So we can get up this. The purpose and remit of the independent panel is to shine a light on the circumstances of Daniel Morgan's murder, its background, and the handling of the case over the whole period since March 1987. So these were the terms of reference set out um, in 2013. Now, the panel will seek to address the questions arising, including those relating to police involvement in the murder, the role played by police corruption in protecting those responsible for the murder from being brought to justice and the failure to confront that corruption, and the incidents of connections between private investigators, police officers and journalists at the News of the World and other parts of the media and alleged corruption involved in the linkages between them. Now, Peter, what I want to do is go through these three points one by one. As I understand it, the report has sort of focused more on, on some than others, but it's uh, you know, clearly they were put there as the terms of reference for, for a reason. So let's begin with police involvement in the murder, which I suppose would have been the most dramatic finding. I mean, th they haven't found the police were involved in the murder, but could you, I suppose, first of all, talk a bit about why that even appeared in the terms of reference? Why were people even suspicious that the police could have been involved? And then what has the panel itself found or judged in, in in this instance? Well, there was talk and there are paper, this paperwork suggesting a management committee had been involved in the, in the planning of the murder, the commissioning of it, if you like. Now, they have not found evidence that there was any, an, in the night in question, a police officer wielding an axe or providing communications. The suspects, and you know, it's quite clear if you read the report, who the suspects have always been and never changed really in 34 years. Um, it was more the question, and that was the trial. Sid Fillery was originally prosecuted for perverting the course of justice, not actually involvement in the murder. So then you go on to the second bit, I suppose, which you what about is, you know, as I said from that first moment on, the querying of the pitch, the incompetence, and maybe deliberate incompetence around the crime scene, around lack of forensics, around the missing objects, a missing Rolex watch, the interview of Reese by Fillery, the removal of papers, that they have established quite clearly, but that is in the area of perverting the course of justice. I would say there are very, they've done some very strict limitation of what they've looked at. And I'd say one fading of the report, and this is because they're so dependent on disclosure from the Met, voluntary disclosure, they have no powers of subpoena, unlike a public inquiry, is they haven't really dug deeper and kind of skirted over. The other detective who died, a, a police detective, Metropolitan Police Detective, Taffy Holmes, who was associated with the Brinks Matt squad, and as we understand it, as the evidence we have, did know Daniel. They kind of looked beyond that. And that's one of the things the Met has always wanted to do is separate Daniel from this other scandal in the summer of 87, which is the apparent suicide of, of Taffy Holmes, Alan Holmes, who was part of a bigger investigation into police corruption. I mean, we know from Alistair Morgan that, that Daniel Morgan spoke about police corruption that he knew about and that he was potentially going to tell the press about. Yeah. And so there is one possible motive that he was taken out essentially to stop stories of police corruption, which potentially involved sort of drug importation or whatever, that being revealed. And so he was he was taken out essentially to silence him. Now, the panel haven't ruled that out, have they? They just haven't said there, is, there isn't sufficient mm -hmm. evidence for them to say that's, that's a plausible scenario. Exactly. I mean, they say there is not evidence to a firm evidence, the point of conviction, really, you know, beyond all reasonable doubt, from the witnesses they have that police corruption was the motive for his murder. I mean, it's very difficult to find any others. 
So they are obviously red herrings planted mainly by the suspects, affairs, what happened in Malta. And I think that's where they are limiting their inquiries, because you see, they really do not address the well-known corruption, which extended to the Stephen Lawrence murder, only a few miles away, six years later, that was evident in CERC, Southeast Legion Crime Squad, evident connections with major gangsters like Noy and Pyle, you know, the informant handling. And they've kind of steered clear of what Daniel was murdered for. So that actually leaves room for more investigation. Their remit was quite limited and the evidence they could gather was quite limited because it was only voluntary. And as we know, the Met delayed for years and years and it took seven years, eight years rather than the two promises. So they couldn't go and there are witnesses around who fear reprisals, who could say and have affirmed, and we've counted seven of them, yes, Daniel was obsessed with a story of police corruption. He was dealing with this detective, Taffy Holmes. He was talking about it to all his friends. It was the most, he was scared that night. It was the most important meeting of his life when he turned up at the Golden Lion and walked into the car park, parking his car outside the back. He never did that very remote car park. He always thought his brother never park out in the back and was axed to death. So we left with this problem. Why? It's very notable, actually, that the introduction to the to the report, the chair of the panel says we couldn't interview everyone we wanted to. I mean, it was it was voluntary anyone. They couldn't force anyone to give evidence. But some people didn't because they feared reprisals. So clearly, um, some people still scared to talk about what actually went on. I know the photographer. I knew him who took the photographs of the Golden Lion the night after the murder, the days after the murder. I asked him to talk on the podcast. And he said, I don't want to put my head above the parapet. People are still scared. Really telling, isn't it? I mean, it's really terrifying. Mm. I, I want to talk about this institutional corruption. This is what the, mm. the panel were confident to, to find. There's potentially two layers to this, isn't there? So there's the, the corruption that surrounded the original investigation, which is more, I mean, what we'd think about of sort of like bog standard police corruption. You know, there were bent coppers who were working on the side, using their position in the police to make profits elsewhere and, and and that hampered the initial investigation because of all of these conflicts of interest. Then after that, we have more of a situation of just all elements of the Metropolitan Police trying to cover up those initial errors or, or, or those initial failings. Is that what you take to mean this, this institutional corruption? When they're talking about the rest of the Met, they're essentially saying the top hierarchy didn't want to investigate this properly because they found it embarrassing. And, and that's what institutional corruption means in, in this instance. I think you're right. And I think it's about, it's not about Cressa Dick. You know, Kirsty Knight, our just partner, said she was the least worst of all the commissioners they've dealt with over these decades. But I think it shifts. You're right. You have that sort of base semi obvious kind of New York style, you know, Serpico corruption going on. And there was, you know, the cops were around that, were planting drugs on people, taking money from drugs raids, the classic stuff you see. But then it moves and it shifts into CIB3, the ghost squad, trying to do something about this a hangover from corruption after the 70s and 80s. And the first place they go, by the way, in the mid-90s is Southern Investigations. And it's that limitation that that very deep institutionalized corruption that they've been all side. They try to, to weed it out, but don't want to weed it out completely because it's so embarrassing. Here's the thing. And this is where it compares with the first report from 1999, where the Met accepted or McPherson said there was institutional racism. Racism, you know, there's no scale of evils here. But they could say, well, that doesn't, except for people of color, affect our prime purpose. 
But if we are institutionally corrupt, every trial could collapse. And I think they were terrified by that. So it was embarrassment partly. But because they didn't deal with the corruption of the justice system, this kind of permeates. And it just became, in a way, too embarrassing and too big to deal with because it went back and infected previous trials. Look what previous commissioners had turned a blind eye. And I, and, and I think that's where we've got to look at the existential function of the Met because it is supposed to be like a constabulary to serve the citizens of London, but it's also an arm of the state. It has this kind of other FBI-like function, and the government find it useful to have this tool which they can use on counterterrorism, you know, undercover, you know, spy cops, all that stuff, which is not accountable to us, which is almost like an imperial police force. I think that's the existential problem with the Met, that these are always open to this kind of abuse. Let's finally talk about the media. Again, this is something that was dealt with less in the final report, but it was part of the terms of reference, and it is it is mentioned in in the report, and that's the incidence of connections between private investigators, police officers, and journalists at the News of the World and other parts of the media, and alleged corruption involved in the linkages between them. So that's word for word what was in the terms of reference. What did the panel find when it comes to to the relationships between police officers, private investigators, and in particular the News of the World? Two things I will alert you to, which I picked up when I was reading yesterday as much as I could in the lock-in before Bannister alone spoke. There was a former cop who left under the shadow of an investigation called John Moss, who was a tipster for News of the World. He was in the instant room and looking at papers, according which was new to me, looking at the murder files the night before Fillory and Reese were first arrested in 1987. He became a famous tipster for News of the World and News of the World. There's lots of instances of them becoming, you know, the hub, as you call it, of corruption. But here's the things people miss. When they put a bug in there in 1999 for five months, they find, I think it's 261 media crimes being committed in five months. Of those, I think 70% were with the mirror group. Because what happened is Piers Morgan was editor of News of the World while some investigations were of their big firms and he took over his crime editor uh whose name just escapes me it's i've just forgotten it it's the editor of the express now over to the uh mirror group and they're on tape talking to the crime editor restating what we're doing is illegal 70 percent of the commissioning of that illegal work went to the mirror group so you have very gary jones come to me now gary jones now editor the express working with piers morgan within this five-month period 200 media crimes the information crimes. So it spreads beyond news of the world. They do deal with the surveillance on Hames and Cook, which is the wife of the leader investigator, Dave Cook, in 2002 by Mazza Mahmoud's photographers. We now know he's hacked by Mulcair. Lots of terrifying incidents happened to that family. And they conclude, yes, it was news, most likely news of the world, and Alex Marinchak, the editor, the news editor then, but not quite up to proof to charge them with perverting the course of justice. What they didn't look at, and we have evidence of, is, in, is interference in the fifth murder investigation. So their problem was on the media crimes, they were reliant on cooperation from Murdoch, from him giving them materials. Banner Solon said they did give them some, they don't know if they got them all because they didn't have the power of subpoena. But even when it comes to a criminal trial, as we learned in the phone hacking trial, they were quite good at deleting stuff. So no, we haven't got to the bottom of the media crimes involved here. In some, very basically, why the media appeared to be relevant to this case is that Southern Investigations, which is 
the agency where Daniel Morgan worked and where the prime suspect worked was also working with News of the World, who then ended up surveilling, it seems, one of the lead investigators into the murder. And this was the lead investigator who at least the Morgan family felt was the only one who was actually doing a good job. So so when there was a, a cop in charge of an investigation who seemed to be getting somewhere, these private investigators and the News of the World tried to find dirt on them, tried to derail the investigation by other means. I would say just add one line to that. You know, they obviously, they work with other papers too. I think that's where you see the poison enter the British tabloid press. I mean, they're always feral. But here they had the means to hack you. They trained Maz Mahmood, stings, they get police information on you. It's just, it is it, the poison from Southern investigations affects us now. Let's go to some political responses to this. So in Parliament yesterday, Priti Patel described the Daniel Morgan case as one of the most devastating episodes in the history of the Metropolitan Police. We look to the police to protect us. And so they are invested with great power. The overwhelming majority of officers use it honourably. But those who use their power for immoral ends do terrible harm, as do those who indulge, cover up, or ignore police corruption. This is one of the most devastating episodes in the history of the Metropolitan Police. Now, Priti Patel shares responsibility for the Met Police with London Mayor Sadiq Khan. Khan this morning told Sky News he has full confidence in the Met Commissioner Cressida Dick. I've got full confidence in the Commissioner. Londoners should as well. But Londoners should be assured that our 32,000 heroic, brave uh, police officers and thousands of police staff uh, find the report appalling. They're going to make sure that we're learning lessons that need to be uh, learned. And the Met Police Service today is a million miles from the police service 34 years ago. But there are still lessons we can learn. And if there are, we will learn them. This relationship between what the police were like in 1987 and what the police were like now and what the report tells us about this. Obviously, Sadiq Khan is saying, oh, yes, the report's very worrying. But ultimately, the police are are very different from how they acted back in the dark days of of the 70s and, and 80s. But as far as I understand, this report has in no way said the police right now are are free from corruption. They've been, you know, they've said the police now are institutionally corrupt. So how should we look at this in terms of the past and the present? Yeah, it's a very good point because she made the, she didn't say it stopped. In fact, the delays around the disclosures, the panel were, she sort of said, another form of ass covering corruption. I was at the press conference with F. Grave, I think the uh, deputy commissioner who spoke on Cressida Dick's behalf. And I'll be really honest with you. It's just management speak. It's the same blather. Unfortunately, Sonic Khan, of course, you and I know there are a lot of good police officers around. But you talk to a person of colour. They, you know, what happened, you know, quite recently with various demonstrations with the murder of two sisters uh, in a park in North London is there are bad cops around. And the blather from senior cops telling us it's all fine, everything's changed is not reassuring. It's exactly, exactly what Alistair faced 34 years ago. I think that it's not good enough. And I don't think it's good enough just getting rid of Cressida Dick. There's something wrong. And I talk to coppers from other constabularies. They always say, whoa, the Met. There's something institutionally corrupt about the Met. Maybe it's his function. Maybe it's his history. But you can't just sort of do a bit of management blather and say this is over. It's it's appalling reaction, to be honest, from both Sunny Khan and from Priti Patel, both of you who do not mention the media complicity because they're quite reliant, particularly Priti Patel, on you know the good faith and favour of those media organisations involved. 
Peter Jukes, thank you so much for for joining us this evening and giving us all, all your insight and parts of your wealth of knowledge um, about this case. Peter, thank you so much for for speaking to us today. Thank you. Bye. Um, I should also say we do have um, an interview with Alistair Morgan, so the brother of Daniel Morgan, which Ash conducted last week on Downstream. Really brilliant interview. If you want to hear more about this story, do go check that out. I really recommend um, listening to that or watching that, however you like to consume it. When Matt Hancock appeared before the Health and Science Select Committee last week, the most helpful statement was made by Greg Clark. He's the committee chair. Clark informed the room that Dominic Cummings, who had spoken to the committee two weeks earlier, had provided no evidence to back up his attacks on the health secretary. Dominic Cummings has now responded by uploading screenshots of WhatsApp messages between himself and the Prime Minister, in which both privately expressed concerns about Matt Hancock's ability and honesty. Now, the screenshots date from March and April last year. We're going to take a look at some of those in one moment. First of all, just to remind you, in his testimony to that select committee, Cummings accused Matt Hancock of incompetence when it came to testing and buying PPE and also accused him of lying about both. So that's what these screenshots are intended to, to back up. Now, the first message I want to show you is from Boris Johnson to Dominic Cummings on the 27th of April. Boris Johnson says, on PPE, it's a disaster. I can't think of anything except taking Hancock off or putting Gove on. Now, in reply to that particular message, Dominic Cummings says, with the Cabinet Office such a total shit show, I'm afraid this would have a severe risk of making it worse, not better. Boris Johnson replies, okay, what the F do we do? Another meeting with Matt and Stevens and Dayton and co. Now, here, Stevens is Simon Stevens, head of the NHS. Dayton is Lord Dayton. He was CEO of the organising committee of the London Olympics, brought in as a PPE czar. Now, in reply to that, Cummings, first of all, talks about problems with the civil servants in the cabinet office, things we've heard about him talk um, a lot about. In the second, he says, with PPE, the real issues aren't about ministers. It's how many people with what expertise are led by who, how are they connected across Whitehall to other networks, what do they do when they hit barriers, how do we create visibility over problems, and so on. In our system, only the cabinet office can dig into the truth, then move crap people and put in new people. Great people is totally critical and we have almost no power to move duffers and put in good. Only the cabinet secretary can do this. Hancock bullshits, but that wouldn't matter much if we actually controlled the cabinet office. So again, there you've got this classic Dominic Cummings line, which is essentially the bureaucracy is not letting us work as effectively as, as we would. The PM replies, Brill, I'm all ears. What's notable there is that within that critique of, of the civil service, Cummings says Hancock bullshits. And he says that as if it's common knowledge, there's no pushback from the PM. So that to me does provide some evidence for Dominic Cummings' claims in that select committee that essentially, you know, everyone had just stopped believing what Matt Hancock said in those first months of the pandemic. This conversation was on the 27th of March. So here, Dominic Cummings says, US has gone from 2,200 tests a fortnight to 27,000 a week ago to 100,000 yesterday. This is what we said we should do. Instead, we are still stuck on about 5K to 7K. And Matt Hancock saying today he's skeptical about getting to 10K by Monday, which he said would definitely happen on Tuesday. 
This means tens of thousands of NHS staff aren't at work over next three critical weeks, apart from my earlier point, retesting being integral to escape plan. So we say Matt Hancock is is not providing the testing we needed. And also he said last week we could get this number. Now he's saying it's going to be difficult to do. Classic Matt Hancock. Well, lying essentially. In response, and this is the real headline, Boris Johnson replies, totally effing hopeless. And you can also see there there's three missed calls from Boris Johnson to Dominic Cummings. Cummings explains in the blog um, that that was Boris Johnson trying to tell him he had tested positive for COVID-19. Dominic Cummings said he wasn't near the phone at that point in time. And we've got one more message, which is a lot like that one. But in this case, referring to ventilators. It's in fact the morning after um, the one we've just shown you where Boris Johnson calls Matt Hancock totally effing hopeless. Here Dominic Cummings says they've totally fucked up ventilators. I just heard officials admit we have been turning down ventilator offers because the price has been marked up. In reply Johnson says it's Hancock. He has been hopeless. Very very clear there what Boris Johnson thinks of Matt Hancock. Now you might say um, this isn't hard and fast evidence of Matt Hancock being incompetent. This is actually just hard and fast evidence that both Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson thought he was incompetent, right? That to me does furnish his his claims. It's always the case in, in any sort of evidential session that if you thought the thing at the time you were talking about, that's that's a stronger piece of evidence than if you're talking about it retrospectively. So I do, I do think that counts for something. Dominic Cummings also, though, um, pointed to a part of Matt Hancock's testimony, which he thinks essentially proves the health secretary was was terrible at his job at this point in time, especially when it comes to PPE procurement. Now, you might remember that Matt Hancock in his testimony suggested that one of the reasons it was difficult to procure PPE was because the Treasury had set rules where if you were charged a certain high price, you weren't supposed to buy it as a sort of method of of cost control. Now, there were obviously big shortages of PPE at that period of time. So Matt Hancock needed to spend way above the odds. He was saying there were some rules that slowed that down slightly. Dominic Cummings is saying that was complete bullshit. It doesn't stack up. I want to go to this um, section of his blog. So Dominic Cummings writes, to MPs last week, Hancock claimed that A, he decided to change the procurement rules that constrained the Department of Health. I requested the cap was removed, Hancock said. B, he went to the Chancellor about it because there was still a Treasury cap on the 11th of April. Cummings says this is false. This is an accidental admission of uselessness. If you believe Hancock's own account, he did not act on this issue until the 11th of April, weeks after it should have been dealt with. No PM pointed this out. He goes on to say, too, in fact, I and others in number 10 had already acted on this in March because of repeated insane meetings. In April, the cabinet secretary checked the paperwork, see below, and confirmed that the cap on the Department of Health had been removed in March as number 10 had insisted. So last week, Hancock was both accidentally admitting being so useless that he did not act until the 11th of April and misleading MPs about what actually happened and blaming the Treasury still for delays in mid-April when the Chancellor had sorted this out weeks earlier. Hancock's story to MPs is a lie that, if true, would show again he was useless. So he's there saying, his account is, I asked for this cap to be removed on the 11th of April. Dominic Cummings is saying, one, I know that not to be true. Um, And two, if that were true, what the hell was he doing for the, you know, the month and a half before that, when it was clear that we would need lots and lots of PPE.
We did also get some more insight into the conduct of Boris Johnson. And that includes this account of a meeting chaired by Dominic Raab. He was standing in at the time for the then hospitalised Prime Minister. So here Cummings writes, on the 20th of April, Hancock faced intense pressure. Under Raab, the meetings were less pleasant for everybody, but much more productive because unlike the PM, A, Raab can chair meetings properly instead of telling rambling stories and jokes, and B, he let good officials actually question people so we started to get to the truth, unlike the PM, who as soon as things get a bit embarrassing, does the whole let's take it offline shtick before shouting forward to victory, doing a thumbs up and pegging it out of the room before anyone can disagree. That's a very plausible account of how I can imagine Boris Johnson behaving in important meetings. Again, obviously, he hasn't provided concrete evidence for that, but it rings um, true. Um, one more revelation about Boris Johnson. He suggests the public inquiry into the mistakes made during the COVID pandemic will be delayed so Boris Johnson can avoid dealing with the fallout. Now, in the process of explaining why it will be delayed, he claims or reveals Boris Johnson is already planning his life after Downing Street. So here he writes, the public inquiry cannot fix this. It will not start for years and it is designed to punt the tricky parts until after this PM has gone. Unlike other PMs, this one has a clear plan to leave at the latest a couple of years after the next election. He wants to make money and have fun, not go on and on. So we either live with chronic dysfunction for another circa five years or some force intervenes. So he's saying, Boris Johnson, not a serious guy. He doesn't even want to be prime minister for long because he wants to have some fun and make some money afterwards. Dahlia, what do you think about this particular blog post? It's definitely interesting for us journalists to have someone who was at the top of government revealing all of these WhatsApp messages, making all of these claims about the actions of people at the top of the Tory party, people in positions of power. At the same time, this guy clearly has a grudge against Matt Hancock and you know, no one really trusts him. Do, do you think these these WhatsApp screenshots change anything? That's what's sort of so interesting about this, right? In that, you know, of course, this, this very much feels um, like a really sensational story. We're not used to someone, you know, at the top, who was at the top sort of spilling all the beans like this on a currently existing government, you know, and, and also in this kind of very particular form on Twitter, like in the form of pictures of screenshots, which like, please, God, someone tell him, if this is going to go on, Someone show him how to take a bloody screenshot because it's like my eyes and my old age just can't deal with it. But, you know, I mean, it's very mean girls. It's very sort of tabloid friendly. And it's and it's almost kind of being reported like it's, you know, entertainment. But when you actually get down to it, he's not telling us anything that is wasn't already quite easy to see. It, it kind of reminds me of when that news came out about Boris saying, let the bodies pile high and people were sort of got very tied up in questioning, you know, the context or whether or not that's exactly what he said. And the proof, well, you know, the proof was always in the pudding. I mean, he did let the bodies pile high. So whether or not he said it in those exact terms, the, the facts doesn't really change. And, and similarly here, when you take away the kind of scandal of it, the sensation, the sensationalized package um, that it comes in it, it tells us something that's kind of always been obvious and should have been obvious to a journalist class whose job it is, or, you know, at least should be, to be insightful and to be analytical and critical of the government and, you know, read between the lines of, of government statements and of government leaks, rather than just sort of regurgitating them as fact, which is sort of the style of political journalism that, that you know, particularly at the BBC, uh, we are seeing. And, and the thing is, is that, 
not only, you know, it tells us what we already sort of knew, which is that, you know, Matt Hancock, but also the government writ large, the government was out of depth in a moment where we couldn't afford to have a government that was out of its depth. And we've lost, you know, thousands of precious members of our community as a result of that, you know, but if, if Trash Futures could, you know, before the Trash Futures podcast, could before Matt Hancock became health secretary, see that he was, you know, clownishly incompetent. You have to ask yourself why, you know, actual professional political media classes apparently couldn't see that or make that observation, or at least were deliberately not honest about it. And, you know, maybe it's because a sort of particular social contract has now developed between the political and, you know, the media class, which exchanges, you know, proximity and scoops for essentially discipline and and boundaries that are very much set by the government. And what I think is sort of so depressing is that, you know, this is fatal, you know, and, and almost deliberate incompetence here that we're say that, that we have seen and that, that Dominic Cummings is describing here. You know, that story about Boris Johnson, the way that Boris Johnson handles meetings is just like it's sickening. Like I said, a lot of this is stuff that we could have gauged without these texts. Why are we only hearing about this? And why is this only being splashed on the front pages of newspapers when it can be done in the form of this sort of Westminster gossip in this kind of Shakespearean spectacle of, you know, the prime minister being betrayed by his his closest confidant. You know, why is this the only time that the public are told in black and white that, no, this isn't about apologism. This isn't about, you know, saying, oh, well, there's something of creating this false sense that the death toll was somehow inevitable, that the death toll of particularly people of color was somehow inevitable. This kind of cruel negligence just being apologized for and sort of uh, excused away. Why has that been how it has been so far? And then when it can be communicated in the through the medium of Westminster gossip, that suddenly that's when we are sort of seeing it. The the, the public is seeing this um, in black and white. And and not to mention that you know, despite the government itself being aware that these deaths were n- not inevitable, but were a consequence of very bad decisions and bad infrastructure. Yet where is the accountability and the change, given that they've known this this whole time? Like to look at that and say, oh, well, he's just fucking useless or it's a bit embarrassing. You know, that's the kind of language that you employ when like you're doing a school project and someone in your group isn't like pulling their weight. It's not when the public is putting their trust in you to manage during a pandemic and when people right now have lost loved ones prematurely because you didn't get your act together. But I think like, you know, and I'm going to end this on the obvious point that this isn't just about kind of Boris Johnson. It's not just about Matt Hancock or Cummings, but it's the ways in which our media and political system rewards this kind of politics. It rewards this superficiality. It rewards performance over substance, uh, sound bites over sort of clear vision and strategic relationships essentially over the truth. Like, why has it come to be the case is it's probably a very long and multifaceted answer that is should be answered by someone with much more tools and knowledge than me. But the fact is that that is the reality that we seem to live in now. And it's like clownish. It's embarrassing to use Boris Johnson's words. Mm, no, I, I mean, I, I do think nothing that Dominic Cummings is saying is a surprise. And it is a shame that it takes an ex-advisor writing blogs for this to finally be recognised. Next story. 
With Dan Wooten as a host, we knew that GB News would spend an inordinate amount of time obsessing about Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Now, this has been borne out in its first 48 hours. On Tuesday night, writer and TV personality Lady Colin Campbell appeared on the station to have a dig at the couple. I think she was invited precisely for that reason. However, when Dan Wooten asked Lady Campbell whether or not the public should be more concerned about Prince Andrew than Meghan and Harry, I think he was trying to portray a semblance of balance, the show's producers may have got more than they bargained for. What do you say, though, to Lady C, to all of those folk who say, actually, it's Prince Andrew who has damaged the royal brand far more than Harry and Meghan with his association uh, with the paedophile Jeffrey Epstein? Well, first of all, may I say, uh, paedophile is a medical term, so is hebophile, and so is ephebophile. And Jeffrey Epstein well, was he, he an ephebophile because... He was he, a paedophile. No, pedophile is prepubescent, hebophile is transitional into adolescence, and post postpubescent is a febophile. So he was an ephebophile. But Lady C, you must accept he was a bad man, a dodgy. I'm not saying he was not someone who Prince Andrew should have been mm. associated with. So so what do you say to those people who think actually Prince Andrew's behaviour has done far more damage than anything Meghan and Harry could do. Well, I hear what you're saying and I see where you're coming from with it and I see where they're coming from with it. But, you know, as with these things, everything is layered and measured and everything has should, should be viewed proportionately. And let's remember that President Bill Clinton, who is a far bigger name and a far heavier hitter in, in, on the world stage than Prince Andrew, was a far greater friend and for far longer than Prince Andrew. So, you know, I think just to put things in proportion, the, the New York Attorney General has been going after Prince Andrew because they are effectively political appointees in America. Yeah. It's not like here where an attorney general is a legal entity. In there, it's not. And they're playing politics. And Prince Andrew is, to a large extent, a distraction so that Bill Clinton will actually be kept out of the frame. I mean, we've talked about some bad defences of, of Prince Andrew on this show before, but that was probably the worst. It was also one of the weirdest, well, actually, um, I think I've ever seen on national TV. So the question, you know, is it more embarrassing for the royals that Andrew hung out with a paedophile than them having a prince and a princess who moved to Hollywood? The guest says, well, actually, he's not a paedophile. Um, her argument is, is that Epstein, I had to look up this word after watching that clip, is an ephebophile, which means an adult sexually attracted to adolescence. So she's saying there the medical term paedophile means attracted to prepubescent children. Um, I didn't think I'd have to be explaining the difference between those two things on this show, but there you are. Now, you might say, um, weird thing to say, but she wasn't defending Epstein. You know, she was just saying point of clarification, um, a paedophile and a, a febophile are different things. That would be the wrong response, though, because she is obviously making this point to try and downplay the significance of Prince Andrew's relationship 
to Epstein, his friendship with Jeffrey Epstein. And that's because she follows that point up by saying, oh, the, the only reason they're coming after Prince Andrew is because of weird political point scoring, because the attorney general in New York wants to distract from Bill Clinton. One, I'm not sure this is distracting from Bill Clinton. And two, whatever the motivations of the American prosecutors, this is a guy who has admitted visiting Epstein after he was convicted of gruesome, brutal sex crimes against children, right? Pre-pubescent, post-pubescent, who cares, right? This was sex crimes against children. He was found guilty of it. Prince Andrew went to visit him afterwards. You know, we know he's subject to allegations himself, which he denies. What did you make of that incredibly bizarre piece of television? So much going on there. Like, first of all, why are we nitpicking on like what stage of pubescence the girls that a grown man is like sexually exploiting? Like, oh, it's you know, pre you know, or transitional pubescence. Like, how about no pubescence? How about like extremely far beyond pubescence, like by two decades or something? Like, just like ew, but also like proportion. Like, are you serious? Like this woman, I had the unfortunate, you know, due to the due to having to, you know, know something about this woman, I had the unfortunate experience of researching her. <laughs> this is a woman who, when Meghan Markle named her daughter after the Queen's nickname, i.e., named her daughter after her daughter's grandmother, deeply uncontroversial. This woman, this particular woman, described Meghan Markle as a very disturbing individual. And yet, <laughs> Jeffrey Epstein, oh, no, 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 let's not besmirch his reputation. Actually, he was attracted to girls who were, uh, like, leaving pubescent, leaving puberty and into adolescence, like, gross. But it's all, you know, yeah, it's all, like, dulcet tones and technicalities when it comes to, you know, not only, like, allegations against Prince Andrew, which he is refusing to, you know, go before a judge you know, to, to deal with. Um, but also, you know, as you say, his very close relationship with Jeffrey Epstein after we knew for a fact that he was engaging in the sexual exploitation of children after that was, you know, con a conviction. And it's like this kind of like the, the, the sort of nonchalance with which he kind of brushes it off. Like it kind of tells me just the kind of the, the in the, how the, these massive institutions from the monarchy to the church you know religious institutions the media the state how kind of you know the 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 embeddedness of um a culture of of sexual exploitation of minors is um sort of within our society and particularly when it's done by people who are very powerful and who are you know very protected and it's important that we don't just keep this to the com to you know conversations around individuals who are presented as sort of uniquely perverted or abusive but we have to understand what is the kind of the, the institution and the network that exists around these individuals that you know whether it's the music industry or the media industry or and all of these sort of like very big um spaces where you know especially after the me too movement we sort of know the scale of harassment and abuse that has has been ongoing it's all about actually those institutions of silence and facilitation that occurs around it that's what's really concerning and, you know, I think this is how the way that kind of like she, you know, has all of this vim for Meghan Markle doing something non that's like really a non story, but such nonchalance when it comes to the harm imposed by, you know, someone who she sees as entitled to the amount of power that he has. It, it kind of like it kind of makes me think about, you know, the kind of ways in which 
the ways in which like the brushing off of violence by institutions, particularly when you think about the purpose of GB News, which isn't to sort of persuade outsiders. It's designed to sort of embolden and fortify and strengthen the base that already exists. Um, and it's basically that base needs a way of brushing off the violence that is perpetrated by the institutions it endorses, whether it's, you know, the police, the monarchy, uh, the church. It needs a way of understanding why it cares so much about sexual violence when it's done by particular, particularly, you know, especially racialized communities, and yet has to find a way to accept or minimize the sexual violence of those who they see themselves as aligned with. It makes me think about, you know, how Donald Trump's first speech when he was announcing his presidency um, was centered around this figure of, you know, protection against the Mexican rapist, um, all while knowing that he himself talks about, you know, how he's so powerful and he's so rich that he can grab women um, by their genitals um, and, you know, kiss them whenever he wants. And, you know, you might wonder, like, how do those two things coexist? And this segment, like, really speaks to actually the kind of way that that contradiction is resolved. But what gets lost in all of this conversation is the actual harm that is done to young people, boys and girls, um, as a result of this culture and as a result of sort of institutionalized misogyny, particularly in these, you know, institutions that are seen as too big to hold to account. Um, and what also gets lost is the essential and urgent conversation that we need to have about how to actually change that culture um, so that we don't continue to live in a world where where this seems to happen so frequently. I mean, I think they're all incredibly important points. I probably should clarify I'm pretty sure that Prince Andrew is, uh, the prosecutors want to speak to him, not because of allegations made against him, but as a witness um, to other crimes. I just wanted to clarify that. But I think, you know, that that broader story of, of what's going on here and why that was such a disturbing um, piece of television is is absolutely right. Absolutely spot on. Thank you, everyone, for watching tonight. Dahlia, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you as always. Thanks for having me. It's been lovely to see you all. <laughs> And we'll be back on Friday at 7pm. So make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss that. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.